Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. It is a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to, uh, to be with Rav Shmuley whenever the opportunity presents itself. Uh, he is one of the people I most admire in the world and wish I could be more like. Uh, and uh, I, I pray that our relationship only continue to grow and deepen uh, over, the, over the years. Uh, thank you all for coming out. It's been a kind of a funky day in, uh, yeah, in American history. Um, so, you know, I think the best antidote is to... Uh, to immerse ourselves in, in, in prayer and thought. Um, and by way of introduction, and really a very short introduction, because I hope we'll cover a lot of uh, material together. By way of introduction, I remember, and this is a memory that goes back close to 30 years. Yeah. Uh, I was at a program uh, with high, Jewish high school students uh, who were not part of a Jewish high school. They were Jewish high school students, but weren't in Jewish high schools. And uh, typically, we spent three or four days together, over, including a Shabbat. We're at a hotel setting or a camp setting. This is a program that went on for many years. And uh, we had wonderful faculty members, wonderful rabbis, many of them from Yeshiva University. And there is uh, one particular rabbi uh, who once said to me something that has stuck with me ever since, because invariably we had you know, davening as part of our program, uh, and uh, this was one of the hardest things to do with uh, high school kids in general, and in particular high school kids with very little prior exposure uh, to prayer generally, to Jewish prayer in particular. And he said to me, you know, quote, I guess davening is a necessary evil. <laughs> uh, and that has always stuck with me. You know, obviously, this is a very pious man himself who has said this to me, who davens regularly. Um, but what do you think he meant when he said davening is a necessary evil? Yeah. Evil just going through the motion. Yeah, it's kind of something we have to do, and we know we have to do it. It's necessary. Uh, but it is often simply not worth the time and effort we invest in it because... Some people may not know what they're... Oh, yeah. Or, or right. Exactly. For most, of, for most of us, most of us, the great majority of us, uh, it, is a, it, it becomes a rote activity. Uh, we may not know what the words mean. Even if we know what the words mean, we, chances are we are not thinking about the words. Uh, there is a reference in the Jerusalem Talmud to... I forget which rabbi it is, but you know, we're talking about one of the rabbis of the, of the Talmud who says, I'm very grateful to my head 
because my head knows when to bow in prayer. <laughs> right? yes, he's very upfront about the fact that, that uh, you know, his mind is, who knows where his mind is, but his body has just become, you know, has the muscle reflex. Uh, and he's very open. I'm sure he's unhappy about it, uh, but he's open about, and it's not the only comment of its kind. And um, my hope tonight is that we will stop at enough of the stations along what is often called the davening train. Uh, that's because you get on at the beginning, you get off at the end, you're not exactly sure what happened <laughs> in between. Uh, to stop at enough of those stations uh, that we have a actual things to think about if we can just stop ourselves over the course of a, of a daily davening or a Shabbat davening, um, and perhaps the inspiration to create other stations well beyond the ones that we'll be able to you know, specifically look at tonight. Um, just before we start, are there any experiences with davening, positive or negative, uh, that you feel comfortable very briefly sharing, just that they can become points of reference for tonight? If not, that's fine, too. We just met each other. OK. As we go along, feel free. This is uh, not intended to be a, a monologue by, by any stretch. Um, so here's, yes. What is your name? Sanders for Shmuel. Shmuel. OK. Lost in a good way or in lost a in a bad way? way? In a good way. Yeah. 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 And, the, and what's nice about that is I uh, was taught uh, by Rabbi Burke, uh, who was really my teacher, and mm -hmm. I didn't have to stick with the crowd when they were dominant. Right. This, this is a very, very interesting point that Shmuel is raising. Now, when you look at, for example, when Maimonides talks about how did we wind up with fixed liturgy, um, what it basically says is, that fixed liturgy is uh, contrary to the very spirit of prayer. It almost undermines prayer. It's almost the antithesis of prayer, right? Because uh, prayer, Maimonides insists, is avodah uh, shebalev. It emerges from the heart. Um, and uh, I'll be right with you. Uh, and, um, and he says that the problem was that given no instruction, people struggled to find the right words. How do we talk to, what do we say to God? How do we, how do we address God? How do we know what's, what's appropriate to say or inappropriate to say? Uh, how do we know what's a reasonable request or not a reasonable request? How do we avoid um, talking to God in such a way that is irreverent? So we just, they were just stuck. And thus the sitter Comprised, uh, composed by you know, leading spiritual minds and comprised of uh, you know, so much material from scripture itself was the solution, except, of course, it created its own problem. Right? So the idea of, of finding the time, both within a formal davening setting and certainly also without, uh, in, you know, in between, is, and to get lost. I love that expression, uh, to get lost in... Uh, 
get lost in prayer. And your name is? Herschel. Herschel. Go ahead. Uh, Good. So let me maybe deal with your second point toward the end. Uh, and the first point, just very, very briefly, because that's a whole other thing, the history of. But uh, it crystallizes in the Gaonic period. Uh, Rav Amram Gaon, who I believe is an 8th century figure. I'm, I could be off by century. Anyone know? All right. Uh, is the first to create a siddur. A siddur wasn't this, but the siddur was a formal listing. On Mondays and Thursdays, we say da 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 da. On Shabbat, we do these. On Yom Tov, we do that. Uh, and he put together a formal, organized canon of what prayers are recited on what day. But of course, the earliest forms of prayer as we have it in the Siddur begin to appear in the time of the Mishnah, going you know, back a 1,000 years before that. So it's, it's an evolutionary process that really begins to crystallize in the Gaonic period. And I, Herschel, remind me, if I don't get to that other point about, OK, yeah, because I, I believe in that very strongly. Um, yes, and your name is? Susan. I'd like to understand better about the choreography. Choreography. We're going to deal with one specific piece of choreography. And then at that point, if there are other pieces of choreography, so I'll give you the signal, Susan, on that. Um, do we have eight hours? What do we have? Yeah? Uh, as from, I guess, a woman's point of view, we have a little study group here at Beth Tefillah. Uh-huh. On Thursday mornings, we meet at the J. And we've been having discussions about this very topic, working with the ambassadors that we brought in from Israel. And, and what we're finding as we talk is that we're not educated to it. When we actually work with the prayer, we find it quite beautiful. But mm -hmm. when, so let's do it. When I right. first went, it was like, well, when Pearl Siegel stands up, then you stand up. And when Pearl Siegel sits down, you sit down. And I had no idea what I was doing. Right. So the, the very idea that davening requires a whole education, which it does, again, goes back to that first point. The, the idea was to make it easier. And we, we kind of made it harder, yeah. <laughs> right? So there's, an, there's, a, there's an irony in that that is simply noted for, for now. Um, but what I really, really want to do, because I'm excited about doing it, and, and, and you know, I think what is our goal for tonight, is to take a look at uh, not a small handful, maybe two handfuls of uh, the tefillot that are either weekday tefillot or Shabbat tefillot, meaning we say them all the time. And uh, I think there's an enormous amount, once we slow down, uh, an enormous amount of practical wisdom that is located in the Siddur. Uh, there are real moments of inspiration uh, located in the Siddur. Uh, and there is the unexpected presentation of the really tough issues that are simply presented in the Siddur, not necessarily solved but they're there. In other words, the Siddur doesn't hide from the really difficult conundrums and struggles of religious life. They're actually in here. Um, again, if we stop and, and, and take a moment uh, to think about them. Um, so the first thing I'd like us to look at 
is on page 123. If you're not looking with in a sidur, you're going to grab uh, a partner and someone who has one. On uh, page 123, middle of the page, uh, we have Mizmor Shir, Chanukat Abayit David, uh, a psalm that is somehow connected to the inauguration of the temple, though David himself never lived to see that, but okay. Uh, however, we understand the, uh, uh, you know, the, the opening line. And just by the way, uh, it seems pretty clear that this psalm, Psalm 30, which is located just before the Psuke de Zimra, meaning it's located just before the formal collection of psalms that we recite every morning, um, so it's odd, you know, it, you would think it should be a couple of pages hence inside the Psuke de Zimra, but yet it's before. Uh, the, 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 you know, the, the conventional thinking is that this was a psalm that was originally recited only on Hanukkah. It was inserted for eight days of the year uh, as a special psalm for the days of Hanukkah, and like so many other things, once it got in, <laughs> we couldn't get it out, right? But having said that, uh, there's something remarkable, I think, about uh, Ms. Marshir, Chanukah Tabayit David. Uh, so there's a very important piece of practical wisdom in it. And if you look with me, um, just through the English, uh, you'll see that a lot of it is uh, you know, familiar in terms of uh, things that are discussed in Psalms. Uh, David is uh, thanking God, praising God for having saved him from some kind of terrible situation. You look at the very last line of the page. You have preserved me from my descent to the pit. We don't know what descent he's talking about, but something awful, and David had his share of awful. Uh, the most striking line is at the top, toward the top of page 124. Um, if you look at the... You know, I think it's the third English-English line. It says, I said in my serenity, uh, I will never falter. And that's, I find, to be a fascinating line. What David is saying is, well, let, let's, let's unpack it together. What does he mean, in my serenity? I don't know if that's the best translation, uh, but not a bad translation. Uh, I said, you know, when times were good, I will never falter. What, he, what is it that he was feeling? And what was making him feel that way? I would, I would interpret that to mean um, that when your mind is calm, mm -hmm. that what, the actions that you do are coming from a different place than when your mind is disturbed. Okay, it's a good thought. He's going to go in the opposite direction, however. Because look at the next line. Um, starts with the word but. But, Hashem, through your favor, you supported, my, uh, you supported my greatness with might. Should you but conceal your face, I would be confounded. He's recognizing that there was a time in his life that how did he feel? Well, it's in the past tense. Yeah. I had said, there was a time that I felt, I'm, I'm thinking of a Beatles song now, actually, just coming into my mind, 
which song is it? Uh, it help, right? Um, help, I need somebody. I, there's a stanza in there about, you know, when I was younger, I never thought, I didn't need anybody's help in any way, right? This is what he's saying. I, I used to say that, David is saying. I used to think I could rely on myself. I had the strength myself. I could be the master of my own destiny. I could do it myself. And I didn't need anyone else's help. But as the, the song continues, and as the psalm continues, but now that I'm a little older, and uh, you know, this is what David is talking about, I, I, whatever it was, that descent into the pit, whatever happened in David's life, it came crashing down upon him that self-sufficiency is an illusion. And that's what this psalm is about. Uh, the idea that you know, self-sufficiency has value to it. It's good to be able to rely upon oneself. But if you think, if any of us thinks, we're going to get through life that way without seeking the partnership of others, without seeking the partnership of God, we're going to wind up in a pit without any way of getting out. And, uh, you know, this is what this psalm is about. And whoever, even if it got into the sitter as a historical accident, it was inserted for the eight days of Hanukkah, and then we just kept saying it every day, there's really a, uh, a practical wisdom moment with which to start every day that I'm not self-sufficient. I need partners in my life. Everything that I do with a partner or partners is going to be better even if it takes a little longer, even if it's a little more frustrating, it's going to be better. And in particular, to have God as a partner, seeking God's wisdom, God's strength, God's guidance. And this practical wisdom, right at the beginning, uh, if we, I think we just stop when we can at this psalm, say, all right, I'm going into my day now. I'm going to be called upon to face a lot of challenges the more relationships and partners I can find, uh, the less I rely stubbornly on myself, uh, the more aligned I am with the way the, you know, human beings are designed to be. And I find this to be a very um, reassuring and affirming you know, practical wisdom with which to start the day. One example, one piece. Before we move on to the next piece, thoughts or questions on on, on Psalm 30. Good. So keep that. Let's build upon that now. Sure. When I read it, I get the sense that focus is more on uh, Hashem, your relationship with Hashem. Absolutely. Not really your relationship and partnership with people in general. But you raised that. Good question. What is your name? Mark. That's a very, I, I appreciate the comment, Mark. Um, I, think, I think that the two are the same. In other words, what does it mean to partner with God? If not partnering with the human beings created in God's image who bring some part of God's wisdom and God's strength and God's courage and God's fortitude. I mean, it, there's something, yeah. I mean, what, to, to, yeah, yeah. But thank you for the insight. Um, good. Because let's move just a couple of pages to uh, 136. 
This is uh, also from the book of Psalms, Zim Sukkot Zimra. Um, it's so short <laughs> that we, we uh, step right over it. And who asked about, Susan asked about choreography? This is a moment we stand for the recitation of Psalm 100 and then sit down. But it's so short that if you blink, you miss it. Um, a Psalm of Thanksgiving. And it's interesting that we have this Psalm of Thanksgiving, not just on Thanksgiving. This was always here. It's a fixture of the daily davening. Um, it probably was written to accompany Thanksgiving offerings in the temple, um, which were offered when people survived a difficult or dangerous encounter, recovered from an illness, uh, you know, instances such as those. And um, you know what? What if I can, can I ask someone just to read the, the English? It's because it's so short, a psalm of thanksgiving. Can someone read it for us? Go ahead, um, Herschel. Psalm of thanksgiving. Call out to Hashem, everyone on earth. Serve Hashem with gladness. Come before him with joyous song. Know that Hashem is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. His people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courtyards with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for Hashem is good, his kindness endures forever, and from generation to generation is his faithfulness. Good. What's the emotional quality of this, of this song? It's happy. Oh, happy. <laughs> happy, joyous. Uh, it's almost uh, overflowing. Uh, you can imagine the person almost dancing uh, as he or she is reciting this psalm, asking everyone, everyone to come join in the simcha, right? Look, looking at those first lines, call out to Hashem, everyone on earth, everyone, all, let's all... A couple of interesting things when we stop and reflect on this simple psalm. You know, there is a... Uh, an idea very firmly grounded in medieval Jewish philosophy that it is impossible to add to God's being, which means, among other things, that um, by expressing thanksgiving to God, uh, we can't be adding in any way to God's sense of satisfaction or recognition, you know, that there is a, uh, you know, God, this is part of the, the medieval idea that God is perfection. And God doesn't need our thanks. God doesn't seek our thanks. God doesn't feel bad <laughs> when, we, when we don't thank him. Uh, you know, there's... And uh, so the question arises, why do we bother? Why do we bother to sing praises of thanksgiving to God who doesn't need our thanks, doesn't need our gratitude? That's a rhetorical question. And yes. Yeah, what is your name? Lisa. Lisa. It helps us to be I can't hear you. It helps us to be grateful. Ah, okay. Certainly, one would have to conclude that if it's not for God's welfare, it's for our welfare. Good. Let's take it a step further. The... Um, the, the uh, Sefer HaChinuch, which is, whose author is unknown to us, uh, the, the author seems to be clearly uh, very heavily influenced by 
by Maimonides, um, just because there are so many Maimonidean-like references in it. Uh, the Sefer HaChinuch has an idea that there is, uh, well, the way he says it, or she says it, because that's also part of the mystery around who wrote the Sefer HaChinuch, um, and why we don't know the author's name, uh, that the, um, we are asked to express gratitude to God. Now, tell me what this phrase means. In order so that we may receive God's blessings. The word receive is the critical word. In other words, if we're expressing thanks, we've already received them, no? What does he mean by receive? He's striking the difference between being a beneficiary of God's blessings and receiving God's blessings. What's the difference? What does it mean to receive the blessing? And how is that the outcome of expressing gratitude? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Like you were about to say something. Right. To be aware of. right. There's, there's an awareness. There's a perception. And what are the blessings that we are the beneficiaries of constantly, but they may not be necessarily the receivers of, unless we're conscious about it. Give me a couple. Health. Breath. Breath is a great example. I'm going to talk more about breath in a second. Right. Love, wisdom, so many things that we are the beneficiaries of God's blessings of these, this nature all the time. But we only really receive them, recognize them, become aware of them through verbally articulating gratitude. And I'd suggest this is why this little thing is in here. Um, this is at least one reason. It gives us the opportunity every day to express gratitude for whatever it is we have in our minds and hearts that day uh, and to, uh, in that sense, really receive God's blessing, which is a religious experience, as opposed to merely being the beneficiaries of God's blessing, which is wonderful, but it's not a religious experience. Yeah. Shlomo. Shmuel. Shmuel? That's the idea behind the blessings over food. Correct. No, this, this is a big Jewish theme. And, and we're preparing ourselves to receive the whole. We're not making the food whole. A hundred percent. Right. Correct. And the Sefer Achinuch uses this idea to explain dozens of mitzvot and practices that we have to be, the difference between benefiting from and receiving. Absolutely. So, so yeah. why this psalm stand? I mean, there's a lot of you said that we stand up. Oh, why do we stand? For this. My guess. I don't know. There's probably an official reason. I'm sure there must be. I suspect because of its early association with uh, the Thanksgiving offering in the temple. Anything associated with offerings, which were always, standing was always the posture, I assume that must be it. But I'm not positive. Um, one other thing about Ms. Molotodah before we move on. You know, <laughs> this is just from, this is literally a personal experience. Um, because you know, we've all had those days when you, know, you look at something like this, the ebullient joy, you know, the overwhelming sense of 
Let's grab everyone and dance in thanksgiving to God for all of the goodness. And you look at it and say, what? What are we talking about? I'm not feeling it, right? Um, And so we look at it and we say, you know, what is it that you, Psalm 100, uh, what is it that you think I should be so happy about and have such gratitude about today? And then it looks back at you and says, what do you think you should be so happy about and have gratitude about today? Well, you think about it for a second before you go on to the next page. And we realize that even on the tough days, there is so much about which uh, we are thankful, so much that we have, so much we've been given. And uh, if nothing else, from Ms. Marla Todah for Psalm 100 to, to uh, bounce it right back at us on those days when we say, I don't know what I'm joyous for. I don't know what I'm grateful for. I don't feel it. Ms. Marla Todah, it, it is, you know, again, one of those moments. Uh, it's practical. It's real. Uh, it's impactful. It's daily. Uh, and it, uh, if we stop and pause, the... Uh, the way that it can change our relationships with others, the way it can change the perception we have of our own lives uh, is enormously powerful. Um, there is, and it's in the Shabbat davening, uh, so I know you don't have it in front of you right now, but it's worth a mention in this context. Uh, the, on Shabbat morning, um, we add a significant poem just at the end of the Pesuket de Zimra section, just before we begin uh, the Shacharit per se, Nishmat uh, Kochai. It's not a psalm. It is very specifically a later composition, though heavily based on uh, scripture. And it seems to have a very important place you know, in our liturgy. It's part of the Haggadah. Um, if you're still awake <laughs> at that hour, it's kind of way toward the end of the Haggadah. Um, and uh, it's, it's thought to be kind of a culminating prayer. Uh, has some beautiful lines about, in it about, uh, you, know, if, um, you know, if I were as tall as the, I guess if, if, our, if our mouths were as full with Praise as the, as the sea is full of water. We still could not sufficiently. There's some beautiful stuff in there. And uh, um, there's one line about thanking God for the tens, for the thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and myriad favors. And, uh, you know, when we're under, what, what do we, tens of thousands and myriads and myriads of favors, so the rabbis in the Talmud say it's referring to individual raindrops, which is beautiful, right? Each, thinking of each raindrop. But you said, Susan, earlier, you said breath. Heartbeats, you know? Anyone here with heart disease? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the heartbeats, the breaths. The, the times that our neurons fire, enabling us to, to act, to think, to move. The thousands upon thousands, myriad upon myriads of favors that 
This, this is all part of the same thing. Being, you know, being able to receive God's blessings through taking a moment to express gratitude for them, which compels us to really be aware of them. Yeah. So I think, you know, Nishmat on Shabbat morning, that's the one time of the week we think about whatever it is that happens so many thousands or tens of thousands of times a day or a week that we completely don't uh, have consciousness of it. That's the uh, expression of gratitude for that. And Herschel, uh, just keeping one eye on the clock there. Yeah. One of the things that is, when you think of advancing, yeah. why I like Taobao stopping, because everybody gets up in dances, so mm-hmm. they try to get everybody to get up in dances. Right. And it's a way of getting there, being in your own head, and being able to, Right. It's, what's interesting is how dancing works differently for different people. Um, what I, I, this is completely off script, but what I have noticed in the you know, 20 plus years uh, is that as much as dancing is a powerful spiritual expression for a lot of people, including me, I know that there are people who are very profoundly spiritual who they do not dance. You know, certainly not in prayer. You know, at a wedding, that's one thing. You know, and then so I've come over time to respect and honor both, both ways of being. I know that's something very in the hardware. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? There are dancers and there are the not dancers. And uh, I never, you know, uh, everyone is, is their own. But yeah, but I very much honor the way in which dance can, can do that. Um, good. Um, so Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Okay. Let's, let's do one more, maybe two more, in terms of this practical wisdom, and then I want to get to some of the uh, kind of the tough questions that the sitter raises. Um, one of the things that is also very striking in the daily davening, just a gem, um, if you take a look at page 165, this is an interesting section. You know, now we've passed from the Sukkot Zimra section, the initial section that is comprised of psalms like Psalm 100 uh, and like Nishmat, uh, and now we've moved into the body of Shacharit itself. The body of Shacharit itself always begins uh, with reference to the rising of the sun and the way in which the rising of the sun is perceived, uh, either literally or metaphorically uh, or both, uh, as God's continue, evidence of God's continuous relationship with and compassion for creation. The, the mere fact that the sun comes up unfailingly, regularly, without any judgment as to whether we are deserving of sunrise on any given day or not deserving, uh, it's, it's taken as evidence of the fact that God renews creation continually, that is his covenant with humankind. And then suddenly, um, on page 164, and now on 165, the, the, that section veers off almost inexplicably, I mean, there is a link in that uh, we move from the sun to heavenly bodies generally and from heavenly bodies generally to angels. It's kind of that quick 
blink and you miss it kind of transition. And suddenly we're in the realm of the angels on 164 and 165. And the reason this section is here has really nothing to do with sunrise or God's compassion for the world as evidenced in the continuing functioning of nature. It was just an excuse. It was a pretext to get us to the angels. The reason this section is here is uh, evidenced on the, again, the third line of 165. We have this scene of the heavenly, uh, you know, the heavenly chamber uh, that is described. And if you look at uh, just a little bit down in 165, they, uh, then they, they being the angels, all accept upon themselves the yoke of heavenly sovereignty. If you're familiar with rabbinic literature and rabbinic uh, idioms, uh, accepting the yoke of the sovereignty of heaven, Kabbalat Omachut Shamayim, is rabbinic code for a particular mitzvah that we do every day. Hint, it's two pages later on 169. What? Shema. That's right. Saying Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, that in rabbinic jargon is the acceptance of the yoke of the sovereignty of heaven, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, and so we have this scene kind of as inspiration before we say Shema, before we accept upon ourselves the sovereignty of heaven, we have a model. What's the model? The angels. And, we are to ex and the idea is we are to be inspired by the model of the angels doing so, and now we do so as well. This is, not, this is only the first time that we do what the angels do. We do it a second time as well, later on in Davening. And uh, the angels don't say, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, they actually say something else. They use different words. It comes from the image that Isaiah gives us of what happens in the, you know, in the uh, heavenly chamber. Um, and what the angels say is, it's further down on 165, very familiar words, where it says, congregation recites out loud, kadosh, 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 adonai tzvaot, mloch kvodo, holy, holy, holy is Hashem, etc., that's what the angels say. That's their form of Shema. They say that, we say Shema, but it's all the same. It's all accepting or recognizing the sovereignty of heaven. Now, um, the, the idea that, again, again, I think is in this file of the practical wisdom of the sitter, uh, things that it, it is teaching us to do, teaching us to contemplate, teaching us to appreciate, uh, just you know, through the way it presents itself, is embedded in the thrice use of the word kadosh. The sentence could have read, kadosh Hashem Tzvaot, God is holy. Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is God. What does it mean? And of course there are various interpretations. One of them actually appears in the Siddur, in the Yuval Etzion prayer, uh, that each term, each use of the term kadosh connotes some other quality of holiness. There is an alternative interpretation that is actually alluded to here on the page. It's the interpretation that um, Radak, who's a 14th century commentator, uh, writes in his commentary on the book of Isaiah. Uh, and it's, it's really here. 
if you look at, go back up the page, right after that line about they all accept upon themselves the yoke of heavenly sovereignty, what's the next line? Someone read it for us. Right after that. It's the one, two, like the fourth English line on the page. And grant permission to one another to sanctify the one who formed them. They grant permission. The angels grant permission to one another. What does that mean? And so uh, Radak's understanding in his commentary, and I think this is exactly what the, I think he's dead on in terms of certainly what the sitter is doing with it, is that the reason that when Isaiah is having this vision of the heavenly throne and the angels all around the heavenly throne and the angels praising God, the reason Isaiah hears kadosh, 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 he hears that word over and over again, is that each of the angels uh, is asking one of the others to be the one who essentially is the leader that day. In other words, every single day, the angels gather and they say, Kadosh Hashem Tzvaot God is holy. And each day, one of the angels needs to be the one who essentially is the leader, and then everybody follows. Um, but uh, I don't want to be the leader because, you know, I don't need the glory. I don't need the spotlight. So I say to you, my companion angel, Kadosh, meaning you start, and then you turn to the person behind you, the angel behind you, and you say, Kadosh, you, why don't you start? And Isaiah hears this echo of Kadosh, 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 until finally, you know, someone starts, or they all do it together. Uh, and the repetition of the word Kadosh is not actually essential to the meaning of the sentence. One Kadosh would have been sufficient to express that God is holy. The kadosh reflects the echo of each, and this is granting permission, uh, how does it, granting permission to one another uh, to start, to initiate. You be the chazan today. You be the leader today. And uh, when we pull back from this, what we're seeing here in the Siddur is a moment at which we are, again, this, this nugget of practical wisdom for the day. You know what? When it comes to things that are of great significance, uh, even such as praising God, it doesn't always have to be about me. <laughs> I can grant someone else the opportunity to be in that spotlight. I can grant someone else the opportunity to take the initiative, grant someone else the opportunity to receive whatever credit uh, you know, might be forthcoming. It doesn't always have to be about me. And were it not for the fact that the sitter itself presents this as granting permission to one another, I would have said, yeah, the, the sitter is just giving us what the angels say. But the sitter is going out of its way to favor the interpretation later, uh, you, know, uh, you know, actually canonized by Radak. Uh, that in addition to praising God, there is also the additional teaching about letting others, uh, ex uh, letting others occupy uh, the spotlight, letting others take leadership, giving others the opportunity 
to have that moment at which it's their day to lead, their day to be the one who, um, you know, who gets that, that wonderful initiative going, whatever that initiative may be, whether it's praising God or something else. And uh, we start piling these things one on top of another. Uh, the importance of realizing that, um, I'm trying to, I, I can't remember that exact lyric from the Beatles song. Uh, I, when I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anyone's help in any way, but now that, <laughs> yeah, sure, right, that, so I, right, Psalm 30. Uh, receiving God's blessings, Psalm 100. Uh, recognizing the, the blessings that come in the numbers of thousands and tens of thousands and myriads, you know, nishmat kol chai. Uh, the ability to uh, make space for others in holy endeavors. Uh, you know, these, these lessons begin to add up uh, and, you know, frame the way that we can engage the day in our activities of the day uh, and there, I, I, think, I think we're just touching the tip of the iceberg in terms of the practical wisdom for living uh, that's really embedded uh, in so many different places in the Siddur. One last one, and it's from the Shabbat davening, so I'll just mention it um, without our looking at it. And that is, oh, there's so many. One second. <laughs> let, me, let me choose carefully before we move on. Um, oh, you know what? Better yet. I, I, you know, I've like, there's so many other things to do. Um, better yet, one that's actually here in the everyday davening three times a day. Uh, another wonderful practical uh, teaching for, for daily living. It starts on page 199. Okay. On 199, uh, we're at the very end of the Amida. Right? We have uh, completed... Uh, praise of God and supplications and gratitude, you know, all of the basic components of the Amida uh, that we recite every morning, every afternoon, and every evening. And then there's the post game. On 199, and this, there's an irony here going back to Shmuel's comment, the Talmud lists about, I don't know, six or eight different spontaneous prayers that various Talmudic sages uh, tacked onto the end of their Amidah. And they're all very different from each other. They're very personal. Uh, and there are literally six or eight of them uh, that the Talmud records, uh, of which what we have here, um, you know, my God, guard my tongue from evil, and so on, in the middle of page 199, uh, is but one of those six to eight. And the Talmud is clearly saying, that uh, this is the model. Even after you've recited the Amidah, which is mandated, everyone should spontaneously add something that comes from their hearts. So what did we do? We took one of them. <laughs> the irony is abound here, friends. Um, and we kind of canonized it as part of davening. Uh, but it's still, it's still a suggestion that we ought to be davening spontaneously and should be, and, and in reality should be. Um, but it's just you know, kind of ironic that now, you know, it, it itself is part of the, the text. Yeah. So it's very interesting. Yeah. I was, I, I diligently read this. Yeah. Because I, for some reason, I've always felt it to be powerful. It's very powerful. And, and, 
mandatory. And you're saying that this is really a tack-on. Yeah, that, that it was. And I could read two lines of this, the whole thing, or substitute it for anything else. It is certainly a tack-on in the sense that one's, one has fulfilled one's obligation to recite the Amidah as soon as you finish, Baruch Atah Hashem, Hom Varech Atamo Yisrael Bashalom, uh, on page 198. There's no question you have fulfilled your mitzvah of davening according to all opinions. And uh, what's on 199 has customarily become part of davening, but it's certainly not part of the Amidah. Like, for example, uh, just as you see it in the way halacha plays out, uh, if, you get, if you are in the middle of Shemona Esrei, when suddenly Kaddish is, when Kaddish is being recited or Kedusha is being recited, you don't interrupt yourself. You listen, but you don't interrupt. Once you finish, you're now in the middle of Elokainetzor, you of course interrupt for Kaddish and Kedusha, because you're out of the Amida already. But um, just as a halachic indication of where the boundaries are. But uh, I want to point something out here that is, uh, and, and I, I appreciate how, that you find it powerful. I find it very powerful as well. Um, Looking at the third line of Elokai Neshama, so it's the fourth to bottom line in the, of, the, of the English translation. Uh, the Hebrew, translated as, to those who curse me. Can you see it? You see it? What's the rest of that line? Right. To those who curse me, let my soul be silent. How do you feel about that line? Okay. Okay. What do you mean? Okay, so what's your name? Alan. Alan. The way Alan is taking it is a very valid way to take it. Uh, that, you know, just, you know, recognize the limits of words to hurt you and, you know, don't overreact to something that's merely words. A perfectly good way to take it. Okay. Um, any other thoughts about it before I offer what I may or may not? be the actual interpretation, but it always comes to my mind, and I think it's a valid interpretation. Any other thoughts on that? Yes? Yeah, it's it just uh, one of the reasons I never said this is because of that. And because it's, I, want, I want to curse him back. Oh, good. All right, good. I'm glad you said that. That's, you know, because I, cause, you know, it, it's, a, it's a challenging line on a lot of levels. Um, you know what biblical story I always think about? There's one biblical story in which very famously, a biblical character who we all know um, is cursed. Someone is throwing stones at him and cursing him. And someone says to the person who's being cursed and is the object of the stone throwing, why don't you just let me go over there and, and, and slice that guy's head off for the way he is cursing you. And the biblical character says, no. Uh, no, any sense which story this is? From the great biblical stories. Uh, you're getting close, but that's not it. David. David is at that moment fleeing the rebellion at which his own son Absalom stands at the head. 
It's not a well-known story, but it should be. It's, it's in, the book of, uh, in the book of Samuel. Uh, literally, his own son, David's own son, uh, pushes him physically, geographically, out of Jerusalem, out of the palace. David is on the run, running for his life because his own son has risen up in rebellion against him. And when that happens, uh, so he's there with, you know, with his guys. You know, he has, he has generally, he has soldiers with him, uh, kind of running off into the, into the Judean desert there just to, to shelter. Uh, so this guy comes out. He's identified as someone named Shimi, the son of Gera. He is identified as a Benjaminite, uh, someone from the general house of Saul, uh, who says, you know, starts throwing rocks and cursing David and saying, you know why this is happening to you? Because you usurped the throne of Saul and you committed violence against the house of Saul and now God is getting you but good through having your own son rebel against you and threaten your life. And David's uh, 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 assistant general, Avishai, says, let me go and slice his head off. That's how he's talking to the king. And David says, let him curse. I need to hear this. Later on, on, interestingly. Good, good, good. Right. Good. But at that moment, David says, let him curse. Uh, Leave him alone. Uh, I don't think David thinks that he is guilty of having committed any kind of violence against Saul or his household. I really don't. But what does David know by that point in the story? There are other things. What's the big one? What? Right, but, but among David's, uh, when, he, when he examines himself and asks himself, why is this coming upon me? He probably knows why. Yes, Bathsheba and Uriah, you know, his whole life goes downhill after that. I mean, it really does. You know, and you can even connect the dots in the sense that you know, after the, the whole incident with uh, Bathsheba, uh, then his own son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. David is silent, probably because he has lost his moral voice on this issue. Tamar's sister, Absalom, is outraged at David's silence. And next thing you know, he's re- I mean, you can connect the dots. And so it's not, so what Alan says, I think, is very valid. There are times you just have to say, it's just words. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let it roll off my back. Very valid. But I think what David is doing is something else. He's saying, you know what? Don't waste a good curse. <laughs> Meaning, you know, if, if I'm in a situation in which I am being criticized for something, something things I've done something wrong, or I have failed at something, clearly failed at something, and now I'm hearing it from people. Even if I think the people who are criticizing me have got it wrong in the sense that they don't fully understand what happened here, I can take the moment to say, let them do that, because there are undoubtedly things that I need to reflect on here. Whether it's exactly what Shimi Ben-Gera is saying or not whether it has to do with the house of Saul or not, and I don't think it does. But if I'm in a moment in which 
I'm on the receiving end of criticism and an accusation that I have failed in some way. Um, more than just, ah, I'll ignore it. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to internalize it. I'm going to take it in. I'm going to use it as a moment for reflection, use that as a moment for trying to expand my understanding of, of uh, you know, what it is that I have been doing in my life that has led me to this place uh, or this moment of failure and criticism. Uh, and I'd suggest the practical wisdom here of to those who curse me, let my soul be silent. It could certainly mean let me not react, it's just words. But I think it could also mean let me actually take this moment to reflect, to think, whether I fully accept the truth of that criticism or not doesn't matter. There's something happening here, uh, and it's a moment of pause. Uh, I, I love both Please? That it could have said, let my lips be silent. Right? So it could be that. Ah, uh, ah. Uh, right? It could right. be that there's both sort of um, an intellectual or social response, which is appropriate for self protection, self esteem, but then a deeper spiritual response that happens simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Because we, we, we react on multiple levels simultaneously. Thank you. Good. Um, good. So. Again, I think there's this among many other moments in the sitter where this really good advice, uh, good advice for living, good advice for reflection, uh, kind of embedded in all kinds of places along the way here. And Susan? I think these are all mutual, uh, not mutually exclusive at all. I mean, I, I, uh, I think I once wrote a little piece called um, 10 Things I Have Learned uh, in 20 Years in the Rabbinate, which was 15 years in, in, in Los Angeles and five years before that in Riverdale. Uh, so the 10, I listed as one of the 10 things which I've learned uh, from my years in the rabbinate is when you're being criticized, listen. Because there's at least a 50-50 chance <laughs> that you have something to learn from what's being said. Right? So uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we're all, we're all in that position you know, every now and then. Good. So I want to move on to a couple of additional things, because we're, we're going start, to start to run short on time in a second. Oh, is it? OK. Two hours fast. Two hours fast. <laughs> OK. So let's, uh, you know, let's get to a couple things, and then we'll, we'll come back if there's time further. Um, something I want to uh, point out that uh, you know, here we're talking about things that are so tucked at the end of davening that at a typical daily minion, uh, men are already taking off their tefillin and folding up their taluses. Uh, half the people have left already because you know, they've got to get to work. They've got to do carpool. It's so tucked away at the end that we don't even know it's there. Uh, and yet, 
these are some of the most remarkable psalms. And here we're kind of shifting from the category of, you know, the practical wisdom for daily living that the sitter has to uh, the sitter giving us space to struggle with things that are very hard uh, and don't have easy answers and, and we just have to struggle with. Uh, and I'm referring to not all of, but many of the Psalms of the day. So I'm going to start us on page 265 with the Psalm for Tuesday, which is Psalm 82. Um, the origin, by the way, while you're finding page 265, uh, the origin of, anyone know the origin of the Psalms of the day? Where they come from originally? Right. So the, uh, the Leviim, the Levites, uh, did a number of, had, a, had a number of functions now, in the temple. Uh, they weren't involved in the offering of the sacrifices themselves. That was the Kohanim. Uh, but they were, they provided all of the uh, liturgical and musical accompaniment. Um, among other things, like housekeeping, they had to do there also. But the liturgical and musical accompaniment, accompaniment, that was the job of the Levites. And they apparently, on their own, kind of selected one psalm for each day of the week. Uh, and it's interesting because it seems that they just did it themselves. You know, the Kohanim didn't tell them which ones, and no one told them. This is spontaneous. Um, and there's some... Now, there's always some at least tenuous connection between the psalm they chose and that day of the week as represented in the creation story. Uh, so Tuesday, better known here as Yom Shlishi, the third day. Uh, and remember offhand, is it here? Yes, it is there. <laughs> uh, what, what, on the third day of creation, God remembers? What? Uh, that's... Uh, Yes, vegetation, but before vegetation, there is dry land, right, that comes first, right. Um, the separation of the water from the land, so there are oceans and, and seas, and there are continents and islands and things like this. Also true, right, I don't know if it's reflected here, but that's, that's uh, also has an important place in Jewish tradition. And uh, so the, 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 the uh, main focus of this very short psalm, Psalm 82, the psalm for the third day of the week, for Tuesday, uh, the main focus is uh, a human activity that enables the life on the dry land, meaning the life of the human community, to persist in a orderly and... Um, um, well, in, in an orderly and livable way. And specifically, just looking at those first couple of lines, what's it about? What institution is being discussed in Psalm 82? Yes, justice. Justice and specifically uh, the working of judicial systems and the roles that judges play. And in the opening verse of 82, and this is reflecting uh, sentiments that are in the Torah in numerous places, uh, who is present whenever judges judge? What is that first line of Psalm 82? Who's present? God. Right? God stands in the divine assembly, Elohim nitzav ba'adateo. And in fact, this is such a strong sentiment in the Torah that the Torah actually uses the word Elohim 
both to refer to God and to refer to judges. Same word. That sense that to judge is such a divine activity, uh, so important to God, and so divine in its quality, kind of getting at truth and discerning truth. It's a divine activity. The Talmud says that judges are literally partners with God. That's not a phrase the Talmud uses as freely as we use it today, partnering with God. Not that there's anything wrong with that phrase, but the Talmud uses it very sparingly and limits it, not limits it, but only uses it, as far as I know, uh, in the context of the work that judges do. So very nice. Judging is very important. Uh, It's a divine activity. God is always present. But look at the turn that Psalm 82 suddenly takes. Uh, What's the last line on the page there? Someone read it for us. Right. Suddenly, the psalmist has become the accuser. Who is is being accused of what? Right. He is accusing judges of not acting justly and, keep going, gets worse. What do they do? On to the next page. They favor... Yes, they favor the wicked and... And who goes, uh, you know, un, uh, you know, without without a champion? My God, <laughs> right? This is something we've seen. I mean, Isaiah talks about it all the time, right? The people for whom the justice system is created, in a certain sense, the people who are powerless uh, and who need to be protected by the law, are the very people who are. Um, being mistreated and abused by the judges. And, you know, you just re- I mean, rescue the needy and destitute from the hand of the wicked. Oh, I'm sorry, right. Uh, good, good. Um, and then in the next line, he describes uh, the way in which the judges neither understand uh, nor know. They walk in darkness. And now the connection to the third day of creation. What's the next line? After they do not know, they do not understand. All foundations of the earth collapse. That's it. It's the reversal of the third day of creation. That's why it's here. On the third day of creation, God creates terra firma. And you know who's destroying it? The judges. The judges are making earth uninhabitable by, uh, you know, by not doing their job and by abusing uh, their power, uh, and, and creating havoc and chaos and uh, societies that lack uh, justice. And what's so interesting is that this is, the, this is the song the Levites choose. You would think, you know, that they, you know, it's, it's the temple, and, you know, we're singing, and we got instruments, and what are we going to sing? Let's see, what should we sing? Let's sing something majestic and regal and beautiful. Right. But this is what the Levites chose. They chose every Tuesday to lace into the judicial system for its corruption. It's remarkable. That's not new, interesting. Yes. Right? And look, and the last line is, look at this plea. Arise, O God, judge the earth. You have to do it, God because uh, the human judges 
cannot stand up to this task. There's no resolution, right? It, it, there's no happily ever after in Psalm 82. Uh, you know, I guess I'm finish my thought. And what is your name? Michael. Give me one second, Michael. This, the, the Levites used every Tuesday morning as a moment of powerful social critique, speaking truth to power, right? It's remarkable. And it's remarkable that's part of our sitter, that the, that, that the sitter brings to our attention, at least every Tuesday morning, the fact that, as you said, this is not new. Corruption is a deep-seated problem. It is a problem in every generation. Uh, and it ain't going away anytime soon. It's something we need to grapple with. It's something we need to talk about out loud in public. It's just remarkable that this is, this is the choice. And then we're going to look at Wednesday, which is even more remarkable. But first, Mark. Michael, I'm sorry. Yes. Which to me is kind of the saving grace in all of this. Okay, go ahead. Right? It says, but like men you shall die, like one of you know, one of the princes you shall fall. Yeah. To me it's like the pendulum that'll swing in both directions that no matter how bad it gets, at the end of the day, this generation will end, this moment will end and something new will end up, change will always come, there will always be you know Right, so that's that's great that you read it that way. I mean, really, it is. Um, that's a very, very positive and optimistic read, and it's good. Um, I'm not sure that that the psalmist meant it. it. It was kind of his last nail in their coffin, uh, saying, you know, you uh, go and look at the previous line, right? I, I said, I mean, I thought you are angelic, so, you know, the, the judges. You are somehow not even mortal but you will be mortal like, like all others. And it's a way, but you're right, in the sense that there'll be another chance, uh, is that, which is what you're saying, right? Right, because if, if we're putting judges up on the same esteem and the same you know, uh, plateau as the Elohim of God, and in that way, we're asking them to be the best versions of themselves. Right. And they're still people, right? We're still prone to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Good. And quickly, Herschel, because I have a couple more items. We're not going there. All right. Not, not, uh, okay, thank you, though. Um, okay, and just a real quick thought. Wednesday is even in a certain way darker, though it does turn. Just scan what the Levites chose for Wednesday. Now, get past the first couple of verses, which are a little pro forma. Actually, not, not in this case. What's this one tackling? This is the big one. This is like the... This, oh, we're having a bad day. Well, well, right, but, right, but what's the problem? What problem is being addressed here in, in, on Wednesday? What about the wicked? Not even judges here. We're just talking about... What are we talking about here? We graduated to a whole other... It's like mob bosses. Right. I mean, what big problem uh, is this psalm addressing? Is it possible that um, they're actually suggesting that God will not treat the wicked more 
I'll, I'll get there in a second. Yeah, good, good. Okay, but uh, yeah. Um, you know, this is the basic, you know, why is it that the wicked prosper? Right? This is the big question. We look around and we see that, uh, you know, the wicked, right? How long shall the wicked, O oh God, how long shall the wicked exult? Uh, they seem to be doing quite well, um, right? And uh, they say, what your, your name is? Gila. So Agila, and it is as if they, the wicked, say, God doesn't even see, right? And if you go back up to the top, the very first line, uh, first two lines, the Hebrew is so striking. Uh, God of vengeance, Hashem, O God of vengeance, appear, Hophia. What, what's the psalmist, what's the tone of voice there? Oh, we need you to deal with this. Right. I mean, it's like, hello? Yeah, we need you now. Right. Where are you, God? <laughs> yeah, I mean, appear, appear implies that what is the psalmist feeling? Exactly, right? He's appealing to God to show up, right? Um, and the next line, now, arise, judge of the earth. Where are you? And he's describing a world which feels abandoned by God because the wicked exult uh, and so on. I mean, you have the text in front of you. Um, your nation they crush, uh, the widow and stranger they slay, the orphans they murder. I mean, Ibn Ezra, in his commentary on this psalm, says that's a del very deliberate dig because God portrays himself as the champion of the widow and the orphan uh, and the stranger. God, and, you know, God loves the stranger. Right? It's a verse in the Torah. And it's a, it's a very deliberate choice on the part of the psalmist. Why are you not doing the things that you claim are important to you? Okay. What? Right. And this, by the way, is all over the book of Psalms. Not all over. I mean, it, it's frequent enough that it is one of the themes in the book of Psalms. This, the, that we cannot understand why things happen the way they happen. We cannot understand uh, the correlation between righteousness and reward and wickedness and, and suffering and vice versa. We, we, we don't get it. We don't see it. We can't, doesn't, doesn't add up for us. And again, before we go to the second half and just look at something in the second half, you know, I'm thinking about the Levites. So you know, what, what should we say on Wednesday? Oh, how about... Let's complain about the fact that God allows wickedness to prosper. How's that for Wednesday? All right, that's good for Wednesday. Uh, it's just remarkable that these were the, in the temple. Can you imagine this? They're standing there in God's temple. And I, it's so hard to imagine, and yet it goes to this idea that I think we don't appreciate that you know, we somehow feel it is impolite or irreverent or blasphemous to, to say, God, what, 
what is going on in this world? Where are you? And the Levites didn't think, and the psalmists didn't think that that was blasphemous or irreverent. They actually believed, and as I suggest we should, that's part of having a real living relationship with God. If you have a real living relationship with a human being, and a human being in your life is acting in a way or failing to act in a way that you say something. You don't just sit on it. If we're serious about our relationship with God, about imitating God, about worshiping God, serving God, walking in God's ways, we have to be able to say, where are you? Why are, why are you not helping here? Uh, that's part of the seriousness of the relationship. And, you know, as we go on in this psalm, I'll just look, I mean, it, it does turn, it turns more hopeful, um, but only after, on the top of 268, this is the pivot verse, where it turns somewhat more hopeful, uh, the critical verse here. In the Hebrew, Praiseworthy is the man, or person, uh, whom God disciplines and whom you teach from your Torah. And that's been, again, interpreted variously as you can imagine. Uh, I think what it means, I'll propose or suggest what it means, in terms of discipline being the critical word, uh, to be disciplined in any area of life means to uh, be able to control, oh, no, different, in a different way, to be able to engage in self-restraint, to be able to say, this is not an acceptable situation. Uh, I, have, I can lash out and I can, uh, you know, uh, take my ball and go home. Uh, or I can have the discipline of being able to say, I'm going to work. I'm going to uh, stay in the game here. I'm going to have patience. I'm going to have forbearance because there is a bigger goal here uh, that if I withdraw from this game, I withdraw from this arena, uh, things are only going to get worse. They're not going to get better. And I have that self-discipline, the spiritual self-discipline to stay in the game even when it feels to me like God is not holding up his part of the bargain. That's the pivot in the verse, in the psalm. And then from there, you know, it gets somewhat more, uh, more hopeful. Um, and again, you know, both on Tuesday morning and on Wednesday morning, you know, the sitter, in addition to having given us all kinds of nice practical wisdom, important practical wisdom for daily living uh, and inspiration, uh, it does not shy away from the Levites didn't and now we don't. It doesn't shy away from the real struggles, the real difficulties of being a religious person, uh, of being a believer, of being a faithful person. It's not, easy, not an easy path not a path that always seems coherent, not a path in which the things that we believe you know, always materialize, at least not in the way that we think they should or the pace 
that we think they should. And you know the third day of the week, and then, then I'll stop and take some questions. The third, there's a third day of the week, and the least likely candidate, when this comes up again in the day's psalm, Shabbat. Mizmor Shir Liyom Shabbat. We say it. It's our first words on Friday night, through which we accept the Shabbat. Mizmor Shir Liyom the Psalm for the day of, of, of Shabbat, uh, and we say it again twice on Shabbat morning. If you look at it, again, it's not, it, you have a weekday siddur, but look at it with God's help this Friday night or Shabbat morning. Um, it is about the fact that the, um, the wicked grow and prosper like grass. <laughs> that's the expression, that's the metaphor that's used. You know, grass just, you know, you having a drought too here? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, we had, you know, in LA, we had uh, a half inch of rain over Sukkot. Uh, but that's enough on the hillsides, way at the bottom of the hillsides, where the uh, water you know, drains down to, you see grass growing like, almost the next day. So uh, the psalmist said, like grass, the wicked, they just, they just sprout up like grass. Um, it's the song for the Sabbath day. <laughs> Can't give us a break, Levites. <laughs> it's Shabbos, for God's sake. Right? I mean that kind of literally, right? Um, no, it's there. It's there in the song for the Sabbath day. Uh, that one is the one, though, that ends, I think, with the pointed contrast. Because the, the, like five, six verses later, we get the tzaddik katamar yifrach, ke'erez bavanon yizkeh. The righteous are like date palms and um, cedars, ke'erez. And I think the contrast there is, you know, grass, it just grows up. And then it dries up. Uh, you know, grass comes and goes really quickly. Um, cedars and palm trees, they take a long time to, you know, to grow and reach maturity. It takes a lot of you know, sticking with it. You got to hang out. You got to be in there for the long run. I think that's what the Psalm for the Sabbath day is kind of suggesting, that uh, it's the same kind of discipline theme. You gotta, we have to be, we, don't, we, should not, you know, we can't have the attention span of grass. Uh, we have to be like cedars. Could take a long, long time uh, to, to stay at it, to stay with it, you know, before you really begin to see the uh, results or rewards. Um, and, well, there's so much more. Uh, but I, I guess the main point of everything uh, that I was hoping to share tonight is that you know, there's a reason that in so many Jewish households, for centuries and centuries, I guess since the printing press was invented, Jewish households basically had one book. And that one book was the Sidur. It wasn't even a Chumash. The one book was the Sidur. That uh, you know, it has become, you know, unfortunately, something that we, we tend to run through in a perfunctory kind of way. But you know, the wisdom, the insights, uh, the, the inspiration to think about both positive and difficult thoughts uh, is in there, which is why I think you know, the Siddur is so central a text. Uh, and I'll close with the following thought. Um, you know, I've often told people who express frustration that there's not enough time to really daven. There's just not enough, to, there's not enough time. Uh, I share the wisdom of my ninth grade teacher. 
Rabbi Yitzchak Cohen, may he be well. Uh, in ninth grade, he said to us, just each week, choose one paragraph. Let that be your one paragraph for this week or this month, <laughs> however long it takes you. Right? And yeah, the rest is going to be perfunctory. And hopefully it won't be, but you know, we know the condition of, of, uh, of, of life. But choose your one paragraph for this week or this month. Uh, and then choose a different one you know, next week or next month. And uh, you know, try to slowly, just, just slow down for that one and slowly build uh, kind of a, a reservoir of uh, cedar thoughts that you can bring with you. And that's my, I hope, the takeaway from tonight. Uh, questions and thoughts? Oh, yes, about? Yes. Good. I think, I think that it's also valid. Now, if our choices are, uh, well, put it, let me put it a different way. What was the question? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm just, just kind of putting the thought together in my head. Um, I think, and I say I think because this may just be me, um, but I think that the, uh, the, going back to that statement from the rabbi in the Jerusalem Talmud, that he's thankful to his head because it knows when to bow, because uh, otherwise, you know, his mind is elsewhere, unfortunately. Um, you know, very self-aware of that. Uh, to use in particular, the Amida time, when the room is quiet and we're alone with our thoughts, to bring in whatever's on our mind. And as what I have done on many occasions is um, if that week you know, we're having uh, a struggle with one of our kids, a school struggle or a social struggle or a who knows what it is with kids, you know, and I'm not sure whether I'm reacting the right way or, or not, you know, I will consciously say, you know what, when I get to the Amida tomorrow morning, I'm just, you know, I'm going to start. I know my lips will say all the right words because they do. They always do. Uh, and I'm just going to bring this thing that I'm dealing with, with my child, with my spouse, with my work, with my community, I'm just going to bring it right into the Amida and hold it up to God's view uh, and kind of think about, okay, share it with God, as it were, and try to actually hear what God would say about what's the right perspective on this? Uh, what's the right way to approach this? What's the righteous way to approach this? Um, and I'll do that. And uh, you know, I always feel the best Amida is the Amida when you've solved a problem of some kind. Uh, and it, you know, it happens uh, for me a lot. Uh, and I realize you know, what I said to that person yesterday probably wasn't the best way to, del to have dealt with that problem. I should probably go back and try it a different way today. Uh, because placing that you know, in, the, you know, in the view of God and trying to hear what God would say um, well, it makes a difference. So, yeah. So there are Any other questions or thoughts? I, I just want to be sure what you just said. You, you, you're thinking that, but you're saying the words of the Amida? Yeah, my eyes and my lips are saying the word of the Amida. 
Right, and, and the reason uh, I invoke that story of Medusa Talmud is that s sometimes the alternative is that I'm, my lips are moving, my, uh, my, my eyes are moving, my, my lips are moving, and I'm thinking about something totally stupid, right? Uh, better, <laughs> I should really be grappling with something that I need God's help with. Uh, and I want to bring before God in this moment of the Amida than to be thinking about the Yankees or something. Not that the Yankees are stupid, but probably not, you know, on the level of what I should be thinking about during the Amida. Okay. Todaraba. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.